Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by Opportunity International. Opportunity International is a global nonprofit working to end extreme poverty by empowering people with an opportunity. They provide small loans and training so individuals can grow their businesses, send their kids to school, and work their way out of poverty once and for all. So this is something we're really passionate about here at 40 Strategy. So please go to opportunity.org to create an opportunity for someone to change their life forever. With that, we always like to give a shout out to somebody who has helped out the Measure Success podcast. And that shout out is going to be to Bill Connerly. Bill Connerly is economist and Forbes senior contributor. He actually was a recent podcast host and he actually made a comment on a recent guest that we had, Michelle Williams. Um, and I loved it. He said the commentary at the end about values other than money is critically important for everyone who both works and has a family. So thank you, Bill, for that shout out. And I and, uh, want to shout back to you. Thank you. And with that, we have our guest who you can see, who are those who are watching online. Our guest, Spencer Shannon, has over 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur combined with extensive financial experience as a CPA or CA in Canada and an investment banker. He's the founder and CEO of Shift Financial and he and insights providing ridiculously simple accounting and financial insights for business on the rise. Spencer has owned businesses in manufacturing, construction, cold storage, and real estate. Spencer is also an instructor for the Chartered Professionals Accountants in British Columbia and a guest speaker at the University of British Columbia. He has been a hyper active member, I love that, of entrepreneurs' organizations since 2005, and he is currently the finance director of EO Canada. Spencer is passionate about endurance sports and has completed several marathons, ultra marathons, Ironman, distance cycling. Most recently, he completed his first marathon distance swim, which we'll have to talk about a little bit later. And not surprisingly, both endurance sports and building a business require a ton of blood, sweat, and tears. Spencer, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Super stoked to be here. Absolutely. Well, you have a lot going on right now, and this is going to be a jam-packed show. First, before we get into some of the exciting things you're doing, let's talk about your core business, which is pretty cool. Uh, Shift Financial Insights. What is that? What do you do? 
Yeah, and just I, I'm happy to explain that, but I just want to say coming off of your intro that I love kind of the idea around Opportunity International. And so my commitment after the show is I'm going to go in and create an opportunity for someone just like you're requesting people to do, because I, I absolutely love the idea and I love the approach. So thank you for introducing that to me. I'm, I'm super stoked to, to support that. Spencer, that is awesome. Thank you yeah. so much. And, and yeah, it is a really meaningful organization. Matter of fact, one of our upcoming podcasts is going to be one of the key contributors of that organization. And he's going to share the deeper story and how he is, he had a successful career. He's now giving his rest of his career to help, help out this organization. And anyways, really special people. And they do wonderful things at these micro loans, which uh, really help make a difference. So with that, thank you once again, Spencer on that. Tell us, tell us more once again about shift financial. Sure. So uh, shift financial insights. So I like to say we make accounting not suck for entrepreneurs. Kind of the underlying belief is that I believe entrepreneurs can change the world. I mean, you talk about it that, you know, who you're supporting. I believe entrepreneurs can change the world and whether they're changing a little corner of their world by creating jobs and employment and good places to work uh, or whether they're actually going out and doing really social, socially based entrepreneurship type of thing, whatever it is, I believe entrepreneurs can change the world. And our role is to help them through their financial blind spot. And kind of through my history of both being a CPA and an entrepreneur, I, I really saw this gap. You know, there are different languages. Accounting's a language. Entrepreneurship's a language. Entrepreneurs often don't really know what to ask their accountants for. They just know they're not getting it. Like, I'm confused. I'm stuck. Also embarrassed. Don't even know what to ask. And accountants know how to put together financials, but don't necessarily understand, especially emerging entrepreneurs, what the emerging entrepreneurs need and, and what they're thinking. Not to mention we're so different in our mindsets, you know, entrepreneur versus accountant, like pretty hard to get more, more diametrically opposed in terms of personality type. I'm, I'm clearly schizophrenic in the middle because I'm a bit of both. So yeah, so what I, about this was, I don't know, five, six years ago, I saw this need where it's like entrepreneurs are just constantly struggling. And I, I, I speak both languages. And so we created a system to go in and we are the outsourced accounting department for businesses, kind of in the one to 10 million range focused on professional services like marketing agencies, uh, managed service providers, that type of thing. And also trade trade organizations. So like HVAC, plumbing, electrical, those types where the owners are just stuck and frustrated. And we, we handle the books. But the whole point to me is the books aren't about getting the books right. Yeah, we all have to do that. But it's about extracting the stories that are buried inside the numbers that help the entrepreneurs excel and succeed to make better decisions for the business. Yeah, here's a set of financials, not good enough anymore. As, as accountants, we failed entrepreneurs doing that. So as entrepreneurs, we need to understand the story so that we can drive better decisions in our business. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be confusing. Quick, simple, and intuitive. Kind of what our promise is for the clients we take on. I, I you know, you and I actually have crazy similarities other than the fact that you've done ultra swimming, which I have a hard time like swimming, you know, a lap. And I just did one marathon. So actually there's not that many characters, but, but just, but we did both start out as bean counters. as I like to call us, you know, we both started out in our, as CPAs, uh, so to speak, well, literally years had a different terminology until it changed. Um, yeah. But, but both CPAs, but both became entrepreneurs. And, yeah. and, and, um, and interestingly enough, I see this, this is why I was so intrigued. I reached out to you actually on LinkedIn. I don't normally yeah. do that. I normally get referral ones. I'm like, this is powerful because it's what I see on a regular basis too, yeah. is that first of all, there's a basic of a lot of times the books are in terrible shape. So that's just a, a small little problem. But the bigger issue is not knowing what the most important key performance indicators are to drive their business. Right. 
So I want to talk about this for a minute. And, and I know we didn't prep for this, but I, I want to, I'm kind of curious cool. from your entrepreneurial perspective. And it's also something, how do you do in your TEDx show, which we'll talk a little bit more that you made this comment about, we're going to change the world and the way how we're tracking numbers and some of the leading things you're doing about that. I have found often the most important indicators are not the things that are in the traditional accounting statements, like tra yeah. traditional CRM. It's not in the traditional, it's these really important leading indicators that's really driving the success of the business. I'm curious from your side, from the accounting entrepreneur side, have you come across that and do you help provide those insights to businesses? And so it becomes a trackable KPI for them mm -hmm. to help manage and measure. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I couldn't agree more. I think about KPIs in sort of two pieces. There's the financial KPIs, the financial metrics, which you do pull out of the statements, and then the other metrics that are really business specific. And you can't specifically pull out of the financials because they deal with metrics that aren't in the general ledger or in the financials themselves. You know, I really like to think for, for entrepreneurs that struggle with the financial metrics, I always find it's the easiest to recognize that there are seven key levers in the business that you can pull to increase cash or profit. And that's it. So no matter how big and complicated the business is, there's only seven. You know, on the income statement, it's sales, cost of goods and expenses. All you can ever do to grow your revenue or to grow your profit is increase sales, either through price or volume, decrease your cost of goods or decrease your expenses. That's it. So if you've got all these crazy sub ledgers or your income statement is 14 pages long, which I've seen, which is insane, right? It always comes back to if you're not making money, it's one of those three. And so understanding which of those to pull has the most financial leverage. So that's kind of on the finance side and the balance sheet, it's accounts receivable, collect faster, accounts payable, pay slower, inventory, turn it faster. Capital equipment is a little bit harder to turn quickly, but that's one of them. Some people will say debt. I don't want to get into that argument right now. So it's sure. really those seven levers from the financial. And those aren't even KPIs per se. Those are straight off the financials. And it just makes life a lot simpler when entrepreneurs are like, what do I need? What's my problem? Like I've seen that recently with, with a client who were literally the owner had to put money into his business. Um, even though they were profitable, he was like, what's going on? And so yeah. I got in and within one or two meetings, we discovered that he just had such a problem with his invoicing process that it was taking him almost four months to get to collect. Wow. Yeah. Now, this business was doing almost $18 million. That's one and a half million dollars a month. Wow. By pulling that process two months faster, he added $3 million to his balance sheet like that. Mm -hmm. So it's funny because like, that's when I say like the financial health metrics, but then we're talking about like the leading indicators, those types of things. That's a whole different, be very customer specific. But there's some really interesting ones. I mean, when you can start to, I mean, you know all this, you know, understanding your close ratio, understanding how many people are at one point during your sales funnel, and then you can actually start to project how are we doing? And if like our, our outflow of our close ratio is showing that we're going to be short, that means we either have to start affecting all the resources we're putting into it, or we've got to ramp up our, like whatever those things are. So I love kind of the both sides. I think it's really critical. Every business has what's going on with our key levers and what are our KPIs that we go with as well. I don't know if that quite answered your question. I'm happy to dive more into KPIs if you like. No, um, no, I, I think, think it's important for people yeah. to understand that there's two piles there and both I, are I, critical. I agree. I agree. And, I, and I, I don't think we have to go deeper for the purpose of this discussion, but I do think that first of all, I love it how you have simplified in those seven key metrics, yeah. which is a combination. It's amazing how many times people don't look at the balance sheet. 
And it's where the balance sheet. So I, I was, forgive me, I was taught by, I went to Coopers and Library, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. They I taught did, us the I, balance sheet. You know, I articled it. I articled at Coopers and Library too, just, just so yes. we can both date. Yes, even closer. We are. <laughs> and, but, but we were taught the balance sheet approach. It basically, the, the point between two different balance sheets is your income statement. Right. You know, by, and if that isn't tying, it's something's wrong. And yeah, the challenge for most entrepreneurs is the balance sheet is more complicated. It's more like people can look at it and read it, but it's actually like the thing I think that where we have the real advantage from going through the program is there, it's all of the relationships. So when something changes on the balance sheet, it means something else is changing somewhere else. And because we're accountants, we'll intuitively know what the impact is, but I think that's a blind spot for entrepreneurs. So we'll see that change, that move between two periods. And it'll be like, wait, what happened? I don't understand what's going on versus, well, that's because it's happening over here, here, and here. So that's one of the real difficulties with the balance sheet for entrepreneurs is it's, it's, it's pretty sticky and gross. That's why I really like bringing it to what are the parts of the balance sheet that you can actually impact? Because some things are just kind of the outflow of what's happening you know, in the business to some extent. Right. You were saying you, know, you had four months lag. So that's telling me a million and a half, three, six, that's six million plus an AR. Right, they cut that in half down to get it down to sixty days, forty-five days, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, they have cash flow back again. Exactly, and, and yeah. it's it's incredible of how once again these balance sheet related metrics are the reason why companies will go out of business, even though the quote unquote they're profitable. And and so I, I appreciate in, you, in, you, inventory being the silent killer of manufacturing and retail businesses everywhere for that exact reason because we don't understand what's going on with inventory and inventory control. And we don't have good procedures around inventory. And this is all like horrible accounting, technical kind of gross stuff. But if we're not doing it right, like, you know, I owned a manufacturing business for 15 years. I lost more sleep over inventory than anything else in the, in anything else I've ever done inventory. No, it's, it, and, and getting that right. Once again, it's cash flow. I think somebody I read beforehand is you actually should be treating inventory as a liability, not an asset. Uh, interesting. Yeah. You know, and, and the, and the fact that it's not cash yet. Right. And, and, and the faster you can get that out to turn it into cash, yeah. more likely your business is going to become profitable. I mean, even though it's by definition, as we know, in the balance sheet is an asset, it, it's, it hasn't turned into cash. And yeah. so Let's let's turn into your book and Entrepreneur Numbers: The Surprisingly Simple Path to Financial Clarity. I love that name, by the way, the, the marketing name behind that. It's fantastic. You must talk about these seven key levers. Yep. What is when you actually when you're presenting, you're speaking. I know that you do this quite a bit. And what is the most common thing that an entrepreneur will come up to you after that presentation? Yeah, I think that it's a great question. I think the common thread is, so the, the point of the book to me is empowerment. I, I have no desire to teach anybody about accounting. Entrepreneurs don't want to learn about accounting. It's about empowerment for the entrepreneur to direct their accounting teams to get them the information they need when they need it. But most importantly, in a format that's simple and intuitive for the entrepreneur to understand. A lot of data visualizations, focusing on those levers we talked about, and then understanding which, which, where we need to dive deep because we can get into analysis paralysis. So after the talk, the, the kind of the aha moment for a lot of them are like, oh, I didn't actually realize it could be this easy if I've got the right foundation set up, right? They're used to it being difficult and sticky and not understanding. You know, we, 
I kind of typically when I speak, we do a case study and someone will start at like a three or four in terms of empowerment. And I don't know, all but one or two times they've gotten to a nine or 10 and often an 11 in terms of saying, if I could create this every month for myself, I would be empowered at a 10 or 11 from accounting. And these are people that struggle. So that's the biggest aha. And I'll sneak in the second biggest aha if I can, which is it's not just me, the entrepreneur. I have other leaders in the organizations. I have other managers, other people that also rely on this financial information. And if they're struggling the same way I am, they're not empowered to make good decisions for their department or on behalf of the company either. So just understanding that if we could actually become empowered and understand, again, I always come back to the stories buried inside the numbers. That's what, why it's called shift financial insights, because it's really about the insights, the stories. If we understand what the financials are telling us, oh, hey, your AR is way too high. We've got to fix this program. And then we're going to land $3 million on the balance sheet. Cool. That's the most important story for that client. So those are the two major ahas. It doesn't have to be difficult. And my whole team needs this. Of your clients, I'm, I'm just curious a question that just because of talking about this, of your clients, how many choose to be open book with their staff? That's a great question. I think there's, there's a difference between open book with the management team and open book with the whole staff. I'm going to say we have much better insight into the clients that are open book with the management. If they choose to share it with the staff after that, that's not really what we get into. So it's, I'm going to have a hard time answering that, but I'm going to say of the one of, of, I'm going to say it's pretty low to be true open book management with all staff. Yeah, um, yeah. Great game of business. I'm a big fan of being open book, but I don't think yeah. most are. Yeah. I, I imagine it's behind there somewhere. Yeah. 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 That's the, I got second the outcome and great game of business yep, right in the top shelf here. I mean, yeah. but, but about the management team, how, you know, roughly speaking, are, are we talking a quarter, half, at least quarters. half, at least half of the management teams have full access, and then we will also do like you know there's there's the reporting like we've actually built our own software because I hate the reporting that comes out of any accounting software. We haven't built our own bookkeeping software. That there's enough of that out there, the QuickBooks and the but we suck the data out of QuickBooks and then format it in a way that's quick, simple, intuitive. So we'll do that package. That's going to be the ownership package, and then we'll often have a manager package, which is here's what I want the managers to focus on. So we have both, but I'm going to say a good half of our clients will open book with the management team. And I mean, I think it's really hard for a management team to support the goals of the organization without knowing where we are. <laughs> like, I, I'm a big fan of it being open book. And the reality for most emerging businesses, kind of, again, we're in that one to 10 range. I have a few coaching clients that are more up to the 25 range, but in that one to 10, like there's not a lot making tons of money. So like, there's always this fear that everybody thinks the entrepreneurs are making a ton of money. You know, most entrepreneurs, especially if you're growing, they're struggling every year just to keep the lights on. And because growing costs, growing doesn't generate profit. It usually costs money to grow. So the fear of like, oh, people are going to know what's going on. No, actually, they're going to actually have a more realistic view on what does it really take to grow this business? You, you sh were alluding to something there, but I, I don't know how much you see it or not. But I mean, it's amazing how many times that the CEO is making far less than, mm. than people within their company because they are continuously investing and they have not figured out that they actually have to make money. It's important, but it's amazing how many starving entrepreneurs there are out there that are not pulling. I mean, you've been an entrepreneur multiple times, you have your yeah. current business. How long did it take for you? to give yourself a real salary? Yeah. 
So it was different with each business. So I've gone through, so before shift, I'd only ever actually ever acquired businesses. Mm. Being a CPA and investment banker, the acquisition route kind of like I understood that. I had no idea how to run a business, but I understood how to acquire them. And I learned the hard way that I didn't know what I was doing. So acquiring existing businesses, I was able to take like a, a modest salary. Like I wasn't crushing it, but those were all okay. Starting a business with shift, it was about three years before I actually took a salary. And like, you know, very candidly, because we're growing and because I do reinvest, we're, we're building software, you know, we've got the de- developers on staff and developers aren't actually generating profit for the business. They're, they are in the long term, but not in the short term. So like, if as a CPA, if I went out and got a job as a CFO, I'd probably make more cash on a monthly basis, but I'm really focused on the growth and the impact we can have as a, as a company more so, you know, like, I mean, I'm fine. Like I'm okay. Like, you know, if if I double my salary today, it's not going to change my lifestyle. So that's not my primary driver, but you know, to your point, it's amazing how many entrepreneurs, yeah, do sacrifice along the way. I was talking to one who just had an exit. I don't know exactly how much, but it was in the tens of millions. And he said, until six months ago, when he exited, he had two mortgages on his house. Wow. But he exited for tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> yep. But the actual operations of the business along the way were just, he was growing so fast and he had inventory that he could barely like he just, he was always feeding it and put everything he had into the success of the business. Luckily he was successful and he got a great exit, but yeah, I mean, he's like, yeah, we, until we exited, I had two mortgages. That's amazing for a business that exits for that. <laughs> well, I, I think it happens more. Once again, it happens more than we know. And, and this is the part I, I don't think we can applaud enough the risk-taking right of entrepreneurs and, and their willingness, right, to take two mortgages where like literally if that inventory doesn't turn, they might lose their home. Yeah. Not, not if, they're going to lose their home, yeah. right? If they can't pay the mortgage because they get so much leverage that they've been willing to do because a bank won't be willing to give them a loan, right? Because yeah. they're too risky in the way what's happening and taking place. Yeah. And, and this is where, once again, I, I'm a big believer in when they get the opportunity to reward because there's more cases than not that they do not ever get rewarded. Correct you know, they do not get that return and they have 10 years, whatever, 10, 15 years of toil. And unfortunately, not everybody gets that big payout that that happens on a regular basis. And at the same time, I don't think most entrepreneurs would trade. <laughs> you know, m- most of us are pretty unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> there is that side uh, for sure. Let's talk about your, your just what last night I was watching your TEDx, uh, leveraging the pain, the past to disrupt the future. You had the at Langara, Langara College. I might have the pronunciation. Langara right. College. Yeah, it's Thank a you. local college uh, here in Vancouver. Yeah. Awesome. But you are officially on. It was really cool. I saw the YouTube. You're out there. Congratulations. Super cool. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question before we get into it. What was more stressful, running your first marathon or doing a TEDx talk? That's what an interesting question. I'm going to tell two quick stories. Okay. My very first marathon was the Vancouver Marathon. And I happened to live on the marathon route itself. So I actually ran past my, my place and I woke up extra early that morning. You know, you don't want to eat too close to start time, blah, blah, blah. So I think I woke up something st- like really stupid, like 4am or something. Cause it was, you know, it was a big deal. And I was just doing some light stretching. I was having a bit, you know, making sure I was hydrating and having a bit of food. And then the, and I was feeling a little nervous, right? I mean, you would, I mean, you've done a marathon, you know what that's like. 
Yep. Very and then at around 5.30 or 6, a service vehicle went by with the yellow lights flashing. They were putting cones down to mark the route. And I literally got nauseous. <laughs> so that's how nervous I was then. With the TEDx, it was a little different because I have been, like, I've done quite a bit of speaking now. So I'm quite comfortable. It's actually one of my passion. Like, I, I love speaking. So I actually quite enjoy it. So I didn't get nervous with this speaking. The interesting thing though, is it was a fairly compressed timeline. So when I, you know, we, I agreed with Langara, we were gonna do it. I had only had the rough concept of what I was going to present on. And I think I had about three months to create the content, practice, practice, practice until I felt comfortable with it. And we of course did it like TEDx is really great. There was lots of rehearsals and lots of feedback from different people. So that was good. I think the nervousness is like, you know, when I do presentations, you know, you always like you doing a podcast, you work out the kinks early. And then the more you do, the more comfortable you are. So it was more just that I wasn't, I wasn't a hundred percent there with the, I hadn't, I hadn't done it in front of live audiences enough to feel really super comfortable. So that's where I was most nervous. And TEDx was very generous on the, on the, on what's live on the internet is there was one moment I remember I was speaking and I was like, and I just totally blanked for about five seconds. And then I came back and I think on online, I think you can see it, but they cut it down to a second. So if you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't have seen it. But that was my moment where I'm like, and my mind went blank. I have no idea where I am. And I wasn't using notes. I wasn't using slides. So I li it was oh, literally wow. an 18 minute talk purely in my head. Wow. So <laughs> you mean that wasn't an intended professional pause? I'm, I purposefully pause when I speak. I usually don't pause for five seconds. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this, 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 this conversation you had in TEDx. What was, for those who haven't seen, I do encourage everybody to, it just came out. It's just, just once again, went live on the internet. And, and if you look at TEDx talks, you could uh, look this up. What was the key message that you were trying to get across to, to that audience? Yeah. And so the audience was college students like that. The TEDx sort of has different audiences. So that was TEDx, although I think it does range to a lot of us. And for me, it had to do with when I was reflecting on my journey to where I got here is, you know, I, I was physically, I, I start the talk with, I would drove to nauseous. I drove to work nauseous every day as an accountant. Like I actually loathed being an accountant. I loathed being an investment banker. At one point in my career, I had three businesses all at the same time. And like, you know, we were doing about $40 million in those three businesses. It sounds like, wow. And then 2008 happened. Mm. And so I spent the next several months not sleeping. Like I remember I was living in the same place and you can't see it um, off here, but you know, my bedroom's in the other room around the corner. And I would literally come and, and fall asleep in the living room if I was there before 2.30 in the morning. If it was after 2.30, I wouldn't fall asleep again. So like that was my life for a while. And I, I spent so much of my time, I don't want to say negative. I'm, I'm a pretty positive person in general, but I was so focused on what wasn't going right. And I wasn't, and I, I just sort of got caught up in the negative cycle in my brain. And so it was really about, you know, if I could reflect that, yeah, I wasn't enjoying doing accounting, but I was laying the foundation and groundwork for things I didn't know was happening in the future. So like I own an accounting practice now. And I love it because I love working with entrepreneurs. So there was sort of these five clues that I came up with, you know, not being in a negative mindset, you know, witnessing other people complaining and catching myself joining in rather than being like, okay, there's a problem here. How do we fix this problem? And, 
embracing the setbacks and challenges. None of those businesses actually went bankrupt. There was a risk at one time that one or two of them might have. None of them did. So the stress of that, it's like, you know, the setbacks were part of making me who I am today. Like without those setbacks, I wouldn't be me. I wouldn't be able to create what I'm creating now. So, you know, embrace that. Like that's part of the journey. Congratulations, you had a setback, way to go. And, you know, if I could have changed my mindset, I think I would have suffered a lot less along the way. And if I can offer that and my story inspires people to be like, okay, I just had a setback. Cool, you know, I'm gonna grow because of this. So. That's kind of the key message. We can actually, even when things are tough, it's, that's just life. Life is, life is just life, whether it's good or bad. Like, how do I just appreciate it and experience that it's going to take me where I'm going next, whatever that might be. Now, Spencer, I think that's one of the things that makes you such a powerful speaker, powerful coach for people is that you've actually been at the helm during a significant downturn. And I remember one of the, in the, this is going a bit earlier, the dot-com bubble. Um, when I had made one of the, the reduction in forces, rifts, layoffs, whatever you want to call it, my reward was to hand out 200 checks to 200 families. Yeah. You know, that was my reward. Congratulations, Carl. You did not get fired. And now you get the privilege of handing people out their last check Yeah, that they will not be able to get a job because there is no other jobs right now. Yeah. Right. And, and until you have that real experience and you've gone through that, you, that's not a good event. You know, going through something like that is not good, but the, what you learn to try to prevent to get there again, you know, what you learn to get over, okay, there's some things that you cannot do without real legitimate experience. And, and that's what you had, right? When you had three companies that were at risk, two of them, you said two to three at risk of, of failing. Well, all three were at right? risk at the same time, which is wow. two were pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, but th- th- that's one thing, that's a severe magnitude. You have employees that you- you're, you're yeah. trying to keep their paychecks with. And, and I got to imagine, you know, that was a tough time in 2008, especially yeah. if you had anything, I mean, things just shut down overnight and, and it was a, a fascinating event. So I, I think that's interesting. I, and I, and I, I think the other part too, that's interesting is here, you started out not enjoying your beginning, you kind of hating it. And here you are back. Yeah doing that again. And I think that's phenomenal. I think I hope for those who are listening of keep an open mind, right? That, that something you may have feared, you may have a gift as a part of that. There's a reason why you went there in the first place that you can provide in a different way today. You know, that's beautifully said with the gift. I I love that. Like, and there may be, you know, you're going through whether whatever you're struggling through, there may be an element like, so what I do now is a twist on what I was doing before. I don't do any accounting. I'm not like, yes, I'm a CPA. I don't do accounting. I do some coaching, but I don't, I don't take on a lot of clients because I love the organization of what we're creating. And so it's like within the realm of whatever you're doing that you dislike, what are the pieces that you love? And maybe that's a way to like twist what you're doing so that you can actually have a bigger impact, more success because you're actually tied into the flow and what you love doing. So I, the way you described it, I think was better than me. So Let's talk about the personal side now. You, you, it's, it's interesting, you know, Spencer, often I'll ask people what they do and, and you're one of the few people who like, oh, I know what you do. <laughs> you, are, you, are, you do marathons, you do ultra marathons. I, Spencer, I just ran my first one just, just about a month ago. Um, Congratulations. First one at 47. And it was, it was a struggle. The struggle was real for sure. And, and I had just a year come off of being in a hospital bed because my appendix had burst. And it was a quite, but you have gone this whole different level. So you've obviously found a way to 
get your energy out, right? Through alternative means that are not just business. How you, you talked about being in your first marathon. How did you get into that? And, and how does that help keep you focused so you could be a high performer in your business today? Yeah. And, and I'm going to, I'll start by saying it's also a double-edged sword. So the start I remember, and this is just how my brain works. I see things that are big and they get me excited. I, I remember the first time I watched Iron Man on TV, I'm like, I'm going to do it. Wow. I didn't know when I just remember. And it's almost like, because they were suffering so badly, that was like super interesting. I just, some friends of mine and I, there was a Thanksgiving race called the Turkey Trot. I think every city has a Turkey Trot and it was a 10 K. I, I ran it. We had so much fun. I'd never done any race before of any kind. And I signed up for the Vancouver marathon, like literally signed up the next day and it was four or five months out. And then I just got running with some friends on a Tuesday night and all of them were ultra runners. I'm like, you guys are insane. I'm never doing this. And you know, you start running with them for a while and then you're hearing their stories. And I signed up for a 50K, then a 50 miler. Eventually it took me to a hundred. And to me, that was a community thing. There was a, re there was such a tight community in the trail ultra running community that that's, that's what kept me going. And that was the drive. And, you know, if you're going to go out and run for six or seven hours on a Saturday with somebody, you better like them. So for me, the community is, is that part along with the attempting to achieve something that I didn't know if, I have the capacity to do. And by the way, like I'm not winning ultras, you know, I'm, I'm what my friend likes to call an elite mid packer. I'm at the front of the middle of the pack, but like, I am so far behind the winner. It's not even funny. The, the other joke is I came second in a race once it wasn't a race. It was a club run, but they call it a race. I came second. It was a hundred K race. The winner was seven hours ahead of me Whoa! <laughs> and I came second, but that the, the other side, you know, the flip side of the, the, I said, it's a double-edged sword is, you know, the body handles, uh, the body incurs stress almost no matter how it comes, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, whatever, our body just takes on that stress. And so while this was happening during 2008, I'm running ultras. So I'm stressed. I'm not sleeping. I'm running ultra marathons and getting stressed there. I'm getting stressed at work. You know, there was just so much stress that I literally ended up in a period of burnout for like three years wow. and I didn't run almost at all. I'd like eight o'clock at night. I'm like, I'm just, I'm going home and going to bed. Mm. A couple of friends are like, I think you're really depressed. I'm like, I don't think it's depression. I'm just exhausted. Mm -hmm. My body had been so stressed for so long. It just needed some downtime. So now I'm a way more balanced. I'm not, I, you know, I haven't run an ultra for a bit. I think I have one left in me just because it's one I've wanted to do for a long time. But yeah, I've had to really sort of recognize my own limitations and not overdo it in everything. That's really interesting. You talk about that, that burnout part, right. Of, of, you can get to that point where it's too much, where, where I, I've, um, I, I'm trying to write a book myself and I found the marathon time took away my open time that I had for writing a book. Yeah. And I'm like, oh crap, I was hoping to get a podcast open book, you know, do, do, a chapter, do, marathon. do this, do this, do this, and do this, like, do this. I, I, once I should know better. I, this is what I teach people is to help you focused. <laughs> right. And there, I put too much of my own plate and it, it's fascinating. You talk about that, that burnout. I think it's uh, anyways, thank you for sharing that and, and yeah. understanding that it's not easy. Right. When you, when you try to do David Goggins, I don't know if you read the book, yeah. can't hurt me or listen to yeah. that great audiobook for those who haven't listened to it. You got to, yeah. by the way, be okay with a little bit of foul language, just a little it bit. Drops a few um, yeah. Yeah. It just a few. But it's an excellent, powerful, and, and really actually hard story to listen to in so many different yeah. ways. But he just completely, he almost thought he was going to die yeah. because he had been doing way too many ultra marathons and hadn't yeah. relaxed, learned how to relax his body and, and to that. So there, there is a 
I, I appreciate you bringing up that double-edged sword. That's not all. It's uh, interesting roses. that you bring him up because when I, because I was a big fan of his and it wasn't for a while till I heard his story of burning out. He goes, I just had to, like, I had to stop. And I'm like, oh, okay. So like everybody's human. Right. And you know, I, I, I think of myself as not like, I, I just chose to do ultra marathons and people are like, that's crazy. I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, yeah. And, and, and everybody has their breaking point. Yep. yep. I, mine was mile 22, by the way, in San Diego. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like scramping. Yeah. I get it. Mile 20. They call mile 20, the halfway point of a marathon. I, I now know that better. Once again, going through my first one and, and his mile, mile 22 had almost a 300 foot climb, which okay. is a pretty brutal thing to stick in mile 22. And yeah, yeah it, it broke my soul, Spencer. It was, <laughs> but, but what's interesting is the other thing I'd wanted to mention, you said something really interesting is that the community is almost more important than the running itself. And I found yeah. which surprised me, I, I re- reconnected with a college friend of mine and, and we've been connect, you know, connected through the years, but we did this together and it, created, renewed a bond that we had that was frankly more powerful and more renewing and more valuable than yeah. the actual run itself. And that's, yeah. that, we we like literally like, Hey, can we go to San Diego again to run a marathon? I mean, that's, that's how fired up we were from the experience of, of hanging yeah. out and being with each other. And, and that surprised me. I didn't expect that, you know, to come and I think there's also an interesting vulnerability when you're out there and doing training runs or you're struggling or one person's struggling, one person's feeling good. It, it creates a whole bunch of different dynamics that we don't experience just going out for dinner with a friend. That's for right? sure. You see yeah. each other at lows and you're there to support them. And then you see how some people react when things are tough. It's like, oh, interesting. They're not reacting well, they're not feeling good. How can I support them? So that's, I think that's the other, like what you just talked about for me, there's a big piece of that supporting each other in those difficult times, which is really beautiful. Yep. Okay. My, one of my favorite questions I'd like to ask all our guests. So what's a book that you recommend for our guests, for, for those who are listening? Yeah. So this one, I'd be surprised if anybody's mentioned this yet, because I was thinking about this coming into the show. It's called The Way Out. And of course I'm blanking on the, the name, but if you just do The Way Out, it's on chronic pain. So what might surprise you is I've had chronic back pain since I've been 15. And it comes and goes and it comes for periods where like, I can't get out of bed for like three days, literally crawling to the bathroom years where I couldn't run years where I could run ultra marathons. And then all of a sudden it would show up again. And the way out is about chronic pain and how our brains treat chronic pain differently than regular pain. And it talks about neuroplasticity. I'm I'm sure you're very familiar with that. And so our brains actually misinterpret signals and starts to get confused. So when I have a little twinge in my back, all of the fear around, oh my God, am I not going to be able to get out of bed? And so there's a program, I've been working with it for like literally 10 days. There's an app called Curable that goes with it. And it really, they talk about chronic pain, like pain is all generated in our head and chronic pain is actually a neuroplastic pain that's created because we've trained ourselves into pain. And so I've been working with it and literally last a week ago, Tuesday, I could barely get off the floor one day. I was lying down there. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can get up. Found out about the book on Saturday. I've been doing the practices every day. On Tuesday, I went for a hike. On Wednesday, I did a spin. My bike is right next to me. I went for a spin on my bike trainer. I was chopping wood about a half an hour before I came on with you. Wow. Like, I literally think I have, not to say I won't have setbacks, but I think I have cured my long-term chronic back pain. And it's all about mindfulness and how we retrain our brain around experiencing chronic pain. So if anybody who's listening has chronic pain, I've had it since I was 15 and it's game changing and it's based on fMRI studies. It's, you know, like 
yeah, there's a lot of kind of the, the what do you want to call it? The hippy dippy kind of approach to mindfulness. This is science-based and I'm like, this makes sense to me. So that's my offer. I, I we obviously have to, we, we, we're, we're like two brothers from another the mother because I, I had back pain back in 13 years old and yeah. I had found out some things, but I have not read this book. The, the author is called The Way Out by Alan Gordon. Alan and, Gordon, thank you. Yeah, yeah, and and I I'm gonna pick this up. This is not only gonna pick up your book, but I'm gonna pick up the way out as well. That that sounds fantastic. I I um, I'm sure you experienced cura- and just just curable is the related app, so that helps kind of with the studies and programs. So like I'll actually work through the app and I'll be like, here's today's lesson. So that they're very complementary. I, I recommend both, but either one is a good place to start. So you're telling me my IT band issue that was crushing my hip, it would help out with. So it depends if there's tissue damage or not, but our bodies are really good at healing. And that's the thing about chronic pain is we feel pain, even though there's no tissue damage. I've been to every Cairo physio massage. I went, I had a, a prolotherapy because of laxity and ligaments. This is what happens with chronic pain. The tissue is fine. It's up here. Mm. So weird. Wow. <laughs> this has been awesome. Uh, Spencer, awesome talk. Where, where can people learn more and find, find out more about you? Sure. So our website, shiftfinancial.co, not.com, shiftfinancial.co. And I'm, you know, on social LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, kind of all that stuff. Spencer Shannon, my last name, easiest to remember. She in, in S H E I N I N. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Spencer, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on the measure success podcast. Thanks, Carl. Uh, A lot of fun. Great chatting with you as well. And I loved hearing your stories along the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Very inspiring everything that you've done. And to everyone else who's listening, we're wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.